Hello, welcome to Exploit It. I'm Alexis Jowski. I'm Kevin Daly. And this week we're talking about Friday the 13th from 1980, directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Hello? Who is that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? One. So this is a big movie. Yes, very important film. And people love slashers, apparently. So I, I think this movie, um, people are going to listen to this episode. Yeah, people love some slasher films. Me too. I'm not going to lie. I like I like slashers as well. Yep, Friday the 13th, it definitely is exploitation. I mean, people look at it as this great horror film, like the origination of the slasher genre, which... That title is still debatable. I mean, Halloween had come out before, and I will make the argument that Alien was also a slasher movie. It was. It came out in 79. Just replaced a supernatural serial killer with uh, an alien and put it in space, and you know, you even got the final girl. Yeah, you do. And, well, the big thing with Friday the 13th is the writer, Victor Miller, because Sean S. Cunningham, who directed it, but Sean S. Cunningham is a producer. And he was a producer that wanted to make money, and he was doing a bunch of rip-offs, and then he saw Halloween, and he, and he told Victor Miller, who wrote his Bad News Bears rip-off called, like, Here, Here Come the Tigers or something. Oh, I didn't even know that was a, a movie. Okay. Yeah, that, that was a, a Sean S. Cunningham produced and directed this rip-off baseball movie for kids. Sports exploitation? Sports exploitation? <laughs> yes, definitely. Get to that. Get to that. <laughs> And he had the told the writer, Victor Miller, he's like, I just watched Halloween and we're going to rip it off. So write me a rip off of Halloween. And Victor Miller, he in the documentaries, he talks about how he came up with the screenplay and he brace, basically breaks down how he came up with the pattern for slasher films. It's like you just take a bunch of dumb kids, put them someplace without adults and have somebody kill them. And he's like, yeah. and I came up with a summer camp and, you know, the rest is history. It's like, where do kids go? Uh, camp. Okay, we good. Yeah, and we're not even doing kids, really. We're doing camp counselors. Yeah, trying to rebuild a camp, I guess. Rebuilding a, a long-disused camp. There are kids in the movie, in the very opening scene, where they're sleeping in their thing. Yeah, 
Which adds actually a good segue into jumping into the movie, because it starts in 1958. Which, it seems so ancient ago, but then I realized that in 1980, that was only 22 years ago. That would be like setting the start of a movie in 2000 today. Oh my god, it would be. Now you all feel old. Congratulations. Oh shit. Um, Yeah, it's 1958, and all these camp counselors are singing Christian songs. Which apparently gets them really horny it does and we have like somebody stalking the the kids we have the pov but no lighting because apparently lighting wasn't a thing in the 80s and so two horny kids who as well as i know this i should remember their names (laughs) i I don't they they die in three seconds so it's kind of like yeah they go up they start fooling around and then the morality police police show up i mean you do have that the christian music somewhat appropriate given the uh the themes of the, of the movie a bit. Well, they are campfire songs. That's true. They're just campfire songs from a different generation. <laughs> yes. I used to sing those in, in Sunday school back in the, when I was a kid and went to church. Well, we sang them when I went to summer camp, but I went to Christian summer camp. Well, that would explain it. I went to fucking Bible camp. <laughs> yeah, I did too, but we didn't go anywhere for that. I just went to the church and just did church things. Oh no, we went to an actual campground and we were there like two weeks and Oh that's way cooler than what I did. We had it was the whole summer camp experience, cabins and counselors and all that shit. Yeah, the only time I did that was we had a sixth grade camp where we all went away for a week. I got like five nosebleeds up at we were at Arrowhead. I think I went to the same camp because like you and I went to the same school district back then. Yeah, we did. And we did the same thing in sixth grade. It probably was the same camp. All I remember is a lot of nosebleeds. Oh, and uh, trying to cook a hamburger on a coffee tin, and then telling us if you if you drop it, do you want to have a fresh one? You got to eat the one with the sand in it first. I think I ate like two sand burgers. Ugh. I can still feel the crunch. Still tasted all right. These two counselors are killed by somebody that's off camera. Yes. That they were seeing their POV, and we get the opening credit, which are kind of the standard for the Friday the 13th movies for a while. You get the Henry Manfredini music. Yeah, it's actually, the score's good. Oh, the score's great. Henry Manfredini did a great job, and I have plenty of notes about him. Because like I said, I've seen every goddamn documentary. And he's he's given a lot of interviews. He's proud of his score, and he deserves to be. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because it's not like super melodic. It's sort of atonal. It's not like sort of gotten into the Philip Glass realm of and like the the Jason theme or obviously we'll get to the end of this in a minute but the the killer theme is this kind of like uh, sound effect it's kind of an interesting leitmotif he takes a line from later in the movie when Pamela Voorhees spoiler alert Pamela Voorhees is the killer yeah spoiler alert for a 40 year old movie when she's like kill her mommy he took the kill and the mom, and so what the killer's actually saying is ki ki ki, ma ma ma. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and that's why he used it as a motif, and it's a totally appropriate motif. It's interesting because you don't have like the uh, like Halloween's got the iconic song or like well like John Friday Carpenter, yeah, but like. This is like a, a more of a little light motif, and it's but it's effective and it's cool. It is. It's great. He did a wonderful job with this music, you know. And like I said, I have plenty more to say about the clever things he did with the music. But after those counselors are killed in '58, we jump to the present, which apparently is 1979. Yes. Did you research that too? I did. To find out that May 13th... Mostly because of... June 13th. I was trying to figure out the chronology of the second movie, so... But yes, apparently 1979. Yeah, 1979, June 13th, which is appropriate. June 13th was a Friday the 13th in 1979. I'm so sad that this year isn't a a June 13th. It's a a May 13th. May 13th. And that's why we're doing these this week, because it is a Friday... The next Friday the 13th we have is in January, so... Yeah, that's even worse. We'll just go with the May one. We'll just stick with May, which is typically when people would be going to prep a summer camp anyway. Oh, January 13th is a Friday the 13th? Yeah, I believe so. That's my wife's birthday. She'll be very happy that it's a Friday. Yeah, she was, uh, she says, yelling at me that she was born on Friday the 13th. 
Oh, awesome. So there you go. Well, that's cool. All right, good to know. Anyway, off topic. Yep. And so we get my favorite character in the movie, Annie. Oh, mine's Crazy Ralph. Oh, well, we have two commercials about Crazy Ralph, so you <laughs> must be pleased. <laughs> Annie is coming into town with all of her stuff, because apparently she decided to walk to this camp. Hitchhike. It's, it's 79, you know. Yeah, I, I, I get... You had highway killers still going about in 79. That's true. There were a lot of killers. The 70s were just laden with serial killers. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, you know, and she's just hitchhiking and walking to camp. It's in New Jersey, by the way. The fresh hell that is New Jersey, yes. Yeah, they shot it there, and it takes place there. I know. I mean, that's that's where, if I were a homicidal serial killer or supernatural being, I think Jersey would be the origin point. Like, the town, you know, which we're calling Crystal Lake, is actually Hope, New Jersey. Yeah, the camp's still there, right? Like, they actually run a summer camp still there, and they have, like, a little, like, display. I think so. I know that it was an actual summer camp they used that had Camp Indian name created by white man. Yes, right. So it's camp like Nikatakabupupu or something. Yeah. Like not remember, an actual Indian word, just something when Indian that was sounding. Okay. Pepperidge Farm remembers. <laughs> Pepperidge Farms. So Annie goes into the diner, and when she goes in, that like everybody, she doesn't go into the diner. She goes into the deli. Right. We see the diner later. She goes into the deli. There's a difference, actually. That's true, but delis are delicious. Yeah, and she goes into the deli, and she's like, does anybody know the way to Camp Crystal Lake? And it's like almost a record scratch. Yeah, exactly. They turn down the, the music. It's like in a western when they walk in, the saloon music's playing, and they say something, and everyone just stops playing. The music that's playing, incidentally, that like country music you hear on the radio all the time throughout the movie... Yeah, yeah. Also written by Henry Manfredini. Nice. Yep, he Some wrote that show. song. It's like Carry On Crazy Sparrow or something like that. Sounds like a country song. Yep. We have Enos offers to drive her halfway. Well, I think he get. It almost felt like he got volunteered. Yeah, he was like, kind you of know volunteered. Where to get there. You got a truck, right? Yeah, I'll take you. <laughs> and he's like, "Are all the girls camp gonna be as, as pretty as you?" And I'm like, uh-oh, is this going to be this kind of movie? Did you recognize his voice, by the way? No, it was familiar. He looked familiar, actually. but Maybe not looked, but sounded. He's the voice of Maurice, Belle's father in Beauty uh, and the Beast. Oh, that would explain it, yes. The, the animated one. Right. Papa, am I weird? Why would you say that, Belle? Well, this town was just rehearsing a whole song about it. Oh, yeah, I did hear them rehearsing that. Oh, yeah, they all sang that song about you, Belle. You're fucking crazy, girl. He dumps, he gives her a whole lore dump. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. we, we skipped Crazy Ralph. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doomed. Doomed. I love Ralph. Camp Blood has a curse. I mean, he's not wrong. Well, he is wrong, but he's not wrong. He is the Harbinger character, which I rewatched Cabin in the Woods this week. Oh, that movie is so good. Yeah, it is great. And that guy in Cabin in the Woods is a sane Ralph. Yes. Yeah, that movie basically plays out like, well, every slasher film ever, and then you get the fun punchline. Anyway, that's a completely different topic, but the movie's great. Watch it. Yep. Oh, yeah, definitely. Watch Cabin in the Woods, and try to forget that Joss Whedon co-wrote it, because yeah. Joss Whedon is kind of a shitty person. <laughs> yeah, but the movie's great. Uh, enjoy a pre-fame Chris Hemsworth, even though the movie came out after the Thor stuff. It was made before. Yeah, you get Chris Hemsworth as a college student. Yeah, and he's good. He's... Very funny. He is. But anyway, back to Friday. So yes. Enos is driving her, and we also see why Annie is one of my favorite characters, you know, because she is so bright and optimistic. She's a great person. Yeah, she is. But And we know those people don't survive in these kind of movies. No, they don't, unfortunately. But he dumps on her, you know, oh, yeah, oh, the, the history. Camp Crystal Lake has a curse. You know, kid drowned, counselors killed, water was bad, fires. She goes, you sound like Ralph. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> maybe Ralph's right. And then he goes into like, well, your boss, Steve Christie, has been doing all this stuff. Throws me off with a certain line earlier in the movie, because the way Enos describes it, like everybody knows Steve Christie. Right, he's descendant from the people who made the camp originally. 
Earth yeah. Directly. Like his folks had run the camp, and now he's running the camp. <clears throat> and you get the impression that Crystal Lake is a small little town. Yeah. But when Annie goes into the diner, I, the the woman there's like, what? What? They're opening that place. I'm like, you're a small town gossip, and a local is doing something, and you don't know. Yeah, that is weird. But we get that classic line where she calls him, "You're an American original." Yeah. Whatever that is. Whatever that means. Were we all conspiracy theorists in the late 70s? I don't know. Oh, that's about the start of the, the Kennedy conspiracies. Maybe it is. Maybe that's what it's a reference to. Maybe it's like, uh, you're a conspiracy theorist. I, I mean, And then we cut to Kevin Bacon and, and, and gang. And Kevin Bacon looks exactly the same as he does today. Yep. Because vampire. He's, he's in the Paul Rudd camp of obviously a vampire. He is. He still almost looks the same. He's a little more weathered these days, but still pretty much the same dude. Pretty much the same dude from 40 years ago, which is pretty impressive. And it's odd to see him in this movie because he's off the success of Animal House. Oh, yeah. He did this right after Animal House. And he was, you know, you know who he is in Animal House. And there's he plays Jack, and he's got his girlfriend Marcy... And we have our full Ned in the car, too. Yes. And they're just joking around. They're driving. They're going to be camp counselors. It's playing this banjo music that Manfredini wrote. Yep, and I, I was wondering if we suddenly were watching Deliverance. Yeah. Deliverance also predates this, if I recall correctly. In fact, I think that track on the soundtrack is called, like, Banjo Truckin' or something like that. So we get to the camp and we learn about alice who is going to be our final girl who i just couldn't stop thinking should have been played by molly ringwald she does have a very ringwald look to her i mean i guess this predates like the brat pack stuff i think by a couple years but just for some reason it says that maybe that's what it is though maybe that was the look in the era yeah she's got like the like page boy haircut yep and everyone's wearing 70s clothes yeah, because it's it 79. But it is 79, so I guess that makes sense. I mean, even though it came out in 1980, it came out... Yeah, fashion's a little slow to change. It's not like suddenly everyone was wearing pompadours and shit overnight. It's like, all right, it's 1980, pompadours for everybody. The movie came out early May. Obviously filmed in the 70, in 79 and stuff, so yeah, it makes sense. Early May of 1980, I know that May 9th is when Part 2 came out, oh, May 9th of 81. Appropriate day for us to be discussing that one, though. Yeah, because I posted it on the Twitter today. <laughs> of happy and happy birthday. Just that great movie. Time, great time to discuss these movies. Yep, it actually is. Uh, we were lucky to have a Friday the Thirteenth this month. <laughs> yeah, actually, true. But you get the hint that um Steve Christie, the owner, that the shirtless owner in his hot pants. There is a lot of no-shirt dudes in hot pants in this movie. Not as bad as Sleepaway Camp. No, but yeah, Sleepaway Camp was definitely definitely well into the 80s by then. Sleep, But Sleepaway Camp was a goddamn sausage fest. That's true. Uh, but you get the hint that maybe he was sleeping with Alice and she's regretting it? Yeah, some awkward flirting here. And we're of course, we're just, you know... One thing with this movie more so than the sequels is a lot of those pov shots of somebody in the woods watching feels like filler yeah it, it kind of does because that's how we're cutting away and going into scenes is with this pov shot and maybe a hand moving a, a, a branch yes and we get alice's very weak backstory she's an artist and she might have to go home to california that's all of her backstory. That's all, literally all we learn about her the entire movie. And she's the character with the most backstory. That's true. Well, I, I guess uh, Christy is also... I mean, we know he's the son or grandson of the founders of the thing, so... Yeah, and we get, we get a sense of his character of, like, being really dedicated to making this camp work out. Yeah, he. I mean, he cares about this place. And we also get introduced to two other counselors, Bill, who's paint in the docks when we meet him yeah and brenda and brenda starts setting up the archery range with those thousand year old targets yeah that no one has bothered to fix or do anything with and since probably since 1957 when, when she's basically just putting bales of hay there there's hardly a target on him i mean that is a way to do it. you just put a bale of hay out there and spray paint it yeah pretty dilapidated 
Ned starts flirting with her, and Ned... Good old-fashioned sexual assault. Oh, Ned is awful. But, I mean, in 1979, he was just joyous. He was just a guy. Right. Because in the course of this movie, he does a bunch of things that if he did those today, he would be canceled. You mean, like, dressing up in the Native American headdress and dancing around, like... Yeah, there's the, the, the dancing around as an Indian, there's the, um... Pretending he drowned to get a woman to kiss him. Yep. A-, a classic move, but definitely not an appropriate move. No, not appropriate. We also get it in the Sandlot, which was for kids. It's true. But he was also a little different when when it is a kid. Kid doing kids, dumb kids. This guy's a full-grown adult. You should know better. Oh, well, they're all full-grown adults that were pretending are teenagers. But we're pretending they're older teens. Right. Because they are counselors. I'm assuming they're like supposed to be 18 19 yeah i'm assuming if somebody is entrusting them with the care of minors they have to be at least 18 i think they're supposed to be like college age kids and we're gonna stop for a real quick commercial break and we will be right back hello there this is Enos for the Crystal Lake Parks and Rec Department to let you know all about the great opportunities for tourism in the Crystal Lake area. In Crystal Lake, you can visit our gas pumps, talk to the dog, visit our diner, say hi to Crazy Ralph, he's always a lot of fun. I could drive you around in my truck. And just outside of the town, there's Camp Crystal Lake. If you're into that sort of thing, the place has a curse. Boy drowning in 57. Two kids killed in 58, bunch of fires, no one knows who started them. But Steve Christie's put $25,000 into starting it up again. If all the girls at camp are going to be as cute as you, then everyone will have a good time. Take it from me, an American original, that Crystal Lake is the place you want to be this summer. Alright, and we're back. So we get back to Annie, who's hitchhiking on the road, and she's picked up by a a point of view in a Jeep. And here's one thing that I have to... Point of view in a horror film, never usually good news for the person that's... uh, It is so obviously the killer. And here's the thing, when I watched this movie, because this was the first Friday the 13th movie that I actually sat down to, like, watch all the way through when I was 12. And Jason (laughs) had... the appropriate starting point. Yep, but Jason already had such a backstory and a huge lore. Everybody knew Jason. That's true. Everybody, you know, even before I watched this, you know, I was one of those kids that knew everything about Jason. I was just confused because I'm like, Jason is driving a car? (laughs) And and, and people are just casually talking to him? What the fuck is this movie? (laughs) Because I did not know the twist that it was Jason's mom. Right. Because back then, in the early 90s, we all knew about Jason, but the twist... Right, there had been already, what, six movies by then? There had been eight. Eight movies, yeah. And the ninth was on its way. But Annie is... She's chit-chatting, and she's being pleasant, wonderful Annie. And um, she's super progressive, because she doesn't even want to call the kids children. I mean, she doesn't want to call them kids. Right. She's like, they're children, kids, you know, and she's seeing them as people. She's such a positive, great person that she would have been a wonderful camp counselor. Also, just supposed to be the cook. Yes, we find out she's the cook, which, incidentally, that was also Pamela Voorhees. I know, kind of weird. Our mysterious driver misses the turnoff, and Annie realizes something is up, jumps out of the truck, and we get the chase through the forest with the next trope of slasher films, the teleporting killer. Yeah, especially given that this is not a superhuman, <laughs> definitely kind of pushing it a bit. I just assume that she knows the woods really well. Yeah, she's just a woman in her 40s. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's not particularly athletic. <laughs> no, wearing a turtleneck. She kills Annie, slashes her throat. Yep. Incidentally, I have an issue with throat slashing, so it was a... Honestly, more squeamish for that than some of the other stuff we've watched. Mm. Um, did you watch the cut or uncut version? Uh, I watched it was ever on Amazon Prime. That's that's the cut version. I have the uncut DVD, but it's really not worth going into all the differences because they're minor. The camera lingers on the death a little longer with each of them. Ah, 
that that's the really the only difference. Cut a few seconds to avoid a X rating or whatever. Yeah, we didn't have a PG thirteen then. Yeah, this would still be an R, I think. But and I think it was an R. Yeah. We get back to the camp, and let's see here. Ned is a piece of shit. I don't know why I wrote that note. It's it's just, just a general note. That's a general note. The snake. That that's what's next. More actual animal death. Yeah, they really cut up that poor little snake because Annie, uh, Alice, not Annie. Alice finds a snake in her cabin, and she calls every single fucking person into her cabin. I do like, uh, there's a line, there's a snake in here, why are we in here? <laughs> like, that's an excellent question. But it's not even a poisonous snake! <laughs> yeah, they're obviously not aware of that. And so Bill uses a machete to, to cut up this snake. And they say something about eating, eating snake, and I'm like, hey... I've had rattlesnakes. It's pretty tasty. They get this line of, I guess we know what's for dinner, which, that's a Ned line, but it comes out of Marcy. That's like, hey, if you want to fry up some rattlesnake, or I guess it's not a rattlesnake, but you want to fry up some snake, you know, just like eating popcorn chicken. Bull snakes pretend to be rattlesnakes. Well, there you go. Maybe it tastes like rattlesnake, just like popcorn chicken. I've never eaten one. Yeah, I've had gator and I've had snake, and they're both very similar to... Their cousin, the chicken. I have had gator. I've, I went out to the gator farm here. So. Oh, yeah, I've been there. And when I used to live way out in the middle of nowhere, we, we killed our share of rattlesnakes, but we didn't cook them. You know, deep fry with breading. They're pretty tasty. But they killed this snake, and, let's, and the cop shows up. We get this wonderful cop. Well, B-movie wonderful. He's actually, like, really shitty. The motorcycle cop, whose name is Dorf, by the way. Really? This guy's trying way too hard. Both the actor and the and the character. And that's when we get Ned and his Native American headdress dancing around, going, yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, yeah, so bad. And he yells at him, he's like, what you smoking, boy? Pot. The weed. Reefer. Yeah. It's like, oh, I thought that's next week's movie. Yeah, that is next week's movie. But no, he he also has that beautiful line where he tells Ned, sit on it, Tonto. I do like that. That's a great sound bite. Oh, shit. All right, who are you people? Camp counselors. Uh, Nettie's just fooling around. Yeah, right, I'm just fooling yeah, around. Can't cheese. Steve Christie, how are you people? Mm -hmm. pay you for this? Hey, nice bike. She's been smoking, boy. Smoking? Don't smoke. It causes cancer. You know what I mean. Would you just get off a spaceship or something? Colombian gold man, grass, hash, the weed. They get... Hey, what's he talking about? Hey, don't get smart. Me? I'm as dumb as they come. Hey, another word out of you. You understand me? Officer, sure. officer. Really, uh, nothing's going on here. We're just trying to get the place in shape. In shape for what? Officer, is there anything we can do to help? We'd be glad to help out. Looking for somebody. Now, who's that? Guy named Ralph. Town crazy. Well, there's no crazy people around here, right? <laughs> I told you to sit on it, Tonto. Now, I got word that Ralph was peddling out this way, spouting his gospel. They they go to make them... Well, Steve Christie leaves. Yes. He's like, I gotta go run some errands. I'll be back after lunch. And he's full of shit. Very long lunch. Yeah, he, he comes back at, like, midnight. This is the uh, kind of lunches I like to take. <laughs> And they start cooking hamburger, and we get the idea that Brenda's a vegan. Yes. Like, when they're out swimming, she says some things about, like, macrobiotics or some shit. It's uh, just setting, a, setting the stage for Blood Diner later. It's fine. Yeah, and she, um, they're cooking up, and she's like, I don't know how you could eat hamburgers. They look like dead animals. It's like, well, well, they are. <laughs> it's like about that. Ned dies off screen around this time yeah usually i complain about people being killed off screen but the reveal later is actually kind of good so oh yeah it has such a great reveal that it it it, it cancels it out yeah this this actually worked also i didn't oh i write this is a note i wrote oh yeah they're they're getting ready for the sex scene they are I with marcy a couple and i like where she talks about marcy's talking about raining blood and all i could not have slayer songs stuck in my head and they have some nice filler footage of a storm yeah um Almost every single Friday the 13th movie, the last half of the movie is rain-soaked. Oh, rain rain is one of those like uh, metaphorical things for change and stuff, and so it's shifting into the nightmare that is the serial killing. 
Yeah, I think part three is the only one where it's not raining during the last half of the film. But that they did comment about it being really, really windy. <laughs> so they still find a way to create a, a menace weather. That's right. Menace weather is a it's, it's a useful tool. It is. It, it it does set a stage rather appropriately. I mean, it's an expensive stage because you have to run all this water the whole time. It's true. But ultimately worth it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I like rain in, in movies, especially in these kind of films, always. I, it's always a good effect. I mean, yeah, it's tired. It's cliched. And it's, a tr- it's a trope, but it works. It's an effective one. Yeah, you, don't make, you don't mess with what works. And so Marcy and Jack go off to have sex in some cabin. I made a note here that said, I think the director must have said something like, yeah, the guys have been wearing shirts for too long. Bacon, take that off. He does. And then we see Kevin Bacon's ass. We do. And it's not a bad one. Um, It's Kevin Bacon. And then we have Alice, Bill, and Brenda in some other lounge. It's like a a staff lounge. It's not a cabin. Something like that. And Alice has this line where she looks out at the, the pouring rain and she goes, Jack and Marcy will get soaked. Not Ned, because fuck no one, Ned. No one gives a shit about Ned. Ned's an asshole. Yeah. Get as soaked as you want, Ned. We're worried about Jack and Marcy, but Ned can fucking drown for all we care. Right. And we get, we'll, we'll play Monopoly. Right. And Brenda lays out the rules of strip Monopoly. Yep, which is what you think it would be well it's during that game that alice is not like the totally innocent final girl we think she is that that well the trope would say she is but she's also really good at strip monopoly she is she barely undresses yeah she loses like no clothes well we're hinted that she's had sex so she's not a virgin probably not and then she's drinking beers with them and then she has a but, line but where she does budweiser count <laughs> she has a line where she takes the joint from Bill, the marijuana, and goes, I'm not passing go without a blow. <laughs> you know, and she takes this big old drag. So I'm like, yeah, she's getting high, drinking, and she's still our final girl, though. This because she has the tact not to just be, like, fucking on in the... <laughs> it's, it's uncouth to be doing it while on the job. She's doing it after hours. That's right, on her own time. And we cut back to Jack and Marcy. They have their sex scene. Who are not, uh, do not have the decorum to not do it on the job. Yeah, they just finish up. I don't even think we get the moan of the orgasm like we do in the other movies. No. Because other movies, from two onward, you'll cut back to with sex scene just to hear the, ah, we're done. Yes, they get progressively more exploitive. <laughs> oh, they do. We get the best-looking kill with Kevin Bacon. I'd like to point out that uh, uh, Tom Savini did the... Tom Savini. Yes, that's where I was headed. It's a good time to point that out. Tom Savini, he was fresh off of Dawn of the Dead when he did this. Practical effects god. Yep, he came off of Dawn of the Dead and did this, and the way they did that um, Kevin Bacon's death scene is basically he's laying in the bed, Killer grabs his forehead and shoves an arrow through his throat, and that but we see the top of the arrow pop up and the blood bubbling out. But you're thinking about it, that's actually kind of difficult to do. Yeah, you really have to push that arrow through. And you have to be careful because the arrow, like, when you're holding the arrow, it could snap pretty easily. And also, you're under the bed. You don't know exactly where you're aiming here. It's actually pretty impressive now that you think about it. And, and she... Gets him through the middle of the throat, not not the jugular. Yeah. So he really bled out and died. But the way they did that effect is Kevin Bacon is like crouched on the bed, under the bed on his knees with his head popping up. And they've got this fake body and neck built there. And they've got this pump for the blood, but the pump didn't work. So Todd Savini actually has to just blow into this tube to make the blood bubble. <laughs> Do what you gotta. And then, let's see, we got Alice and them getting high, and we're gonna break for commercial real quick here. This is Ralph. People call me crazy, Ralph, but they're wrong. I'm sane, totally sane, Ralph. I'm telling you that you are doomed. 
Tune in to my AM radio show, Harbinger Radio, and I can tell you that Camp Blood has a death curse. I also have other prophecies. The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Their blind eyes see nothing of the horrors to come. Their ears are stopped. They are God's fools. Cleanse them. Cleanse the world of their ignorance and sin. Bathe them in the crimson. Sorry, it sounded like I was on a speakerphone. Where were we? Oh, yes. Harbinger Radio, Camp Blood, Death Curses, etc. The Ancient Ones see everything and they will not... Oh, hold on. I have to tell this camper about the death curse. They're all doomed! Tune in to Harbinger Radio in Crystal Lake for more. And we're back. So, yeah, I have the note of the wonderful special effects of Bacon's yeah. death. I mean, all of them are good, obviously. And we get Marthy's lo- Marcy's long, long bathroom scene. <laughs> which yeah. goes yeah. on forever. It does, and nothing really happens. She goes in there. She, she, the sink doesn't work. She has to figure it out and turn the sink on, and then she has to. She's got to do her Catherine Hepburn monologue, and yeah, a bit of filler here. Let's let's be honest. And then eventually, a year later, she gets an axe in the the, the, in the face. Yeah, I mean, one of the least. at least bad deaths. Pretty quick. And there's a thing here about, like, the constant changing weapons, which the commentary I want to say about that I'm going to save for the next movie, for Friday the 13th Part 2. Yeah, I mean, everything's a little bit different. So, she's dead, and their game of Monopoly is reined in on. You know, like every single game of Monopoly ever played, it's unfinished. Someone gets pissed off, flips the table. I hate Monopoly. Everybody does. Except my brother, who wins all... No one, everyone in my family refuses to play Monopoly with my brother. Actually, my sister and I once sat down and figured out how to do Monopoly and have it take place in less than two hours. If you actually play with, like, the real rules, you can do it, but no one plays the rules. Yeah, nobody plays. If you play the real rules, that game is actually tight and concise. The economy is controlled. The game's still shitty, but it's at least it's fast. It is much faster, and there's a lot more strategy because the money is so limited. Yeah, you're not like landing on go and being able to buy the damn board. Right, you have to actually think things out. You know, so when you play by the rules, it it, it can be a challenging game. But I've never met a single person who actually plays by the rules. <laughs> No, the only reason my sister and I did is because we were experimenting to become good at it and, and realize how it's actually played with the auctioning of the properties and everything. But we are so off topic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's there's Monopoly in the movie. But yes, you're right. We should probably continue with the action movie rather than wax poetic about Monopoly. So we have another interminable bathroom scene with Brenda this time. Yeah, pretty sure, uh, pretty sure she's just spawn. Pamela's just spawn camping the bathroom at this point. Well, she is. You see her hand on the shower curtain. I know. I mean, you just keep people just keep walking in there. I mean, you gotta, you know, you gotta take care of the easy kills when you got them. Yeah, you're right. She is spawn camping, but that's not how she kills her eventually. No, it's true. She's just hanging out there. She's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play out this noob for a bit. Yeah. Let him think they're having a good time. Too easy, she says. I don't have enough space over here for a second corpse. Or maybe maybe she was on the the mic and just like, oh, God, this person's a kid. I'm going to let them think they're good before I snipe them. That's right. We get Steve at the diner. Would it be a blood diner? Oh, it has the feel. It does have that feel. But we got the diner lady who's actually a local. Oh, real-life local. A real-life local. That's cool. And she's all sweet to Steve. Flirting with Steve. And I don't know what he ordered, but it cost two and a quarter. Just like $60,000 in modern money. Yeah, she must, he must have eaten the whole goddamn menu. Oh, inflation, sag. And he gets in his Jeep to start his ride home. And it breaks down, and he gets a ride with a different cop. Right. He points out that it's a full moon. Oh, yeah, this whole discussion about how full moons make people kill people more. Now, I listened to one podcast that actually went to do the research of what dates full moons were on. Yeah. That's... How often a full moon falls on a Friday the 13th? Yeah, it totally did not happen in 1980. Probably not 
super common. No, no, it's very rare. They went from, like, there was one in 1978, and then the next one is in, like, 2025 or something like that. Conflux there is probably pretty uncommon. And back at the camp, we have Brenda. We get that at the... The shouting of the kid, help me, help me. Totally not bait. Tom Hardy would have seen through that shit. That's right. And she runs out, and we get the long, you know, usual trope of, hello, hello, anyone there, hello. Before, it, she killed on screen? No. It's I don't like think the so. lights flash, unless it's in the uncut one, because the lights... No, it's not. The lights, like, flash on the, the, the archery range, and then it just cuts. Because she's killed at the archery range, which it's weird because on the back of the VHS is the shot of her at the archery range when Ned is messing with her. Yeah. So it has her all shocked and looking at the arrow in the target. Yeah. But that's the shot that they used for the back of the VHS. Not her kill scene. Because <laughs> there isn't. And it's about this time that Bill and Alice become suspicious and start looking around the camp. A lot of name calling. Uh, calling up you, Marcy, Jack. Marcy and Jack and Brenda. They say Ned Brenda? once. No one cares about Ned. No one cares about Ned. Nor they, they, they they say Ned once out of desperation. It's like Ned is their one person alive. Even you, I'll take it. Let's see here. They find the axe tucked into a bed, which I thought was odd. It's like that's the kind of thing you do as a warning. Not inclined to actually be warning anybody. No, yeah, yeah. Pamela Voorhees, when we get more into her character, she's just out there to kill them. So why why leave the axe at the bed? It was kind of weird. She just wants to murder them all. Why, why is she setting up... Why is she hiding the bodies in booby traps, which becomes a trope? Yeah, yeah, weird. We get back to Steve coming up to camp, and he's having to walk the rest of the way. And he has to go, oh, hey, it's you. What are you doing out in this mess? Stabbed in the stomach. Right, because he knows. Knows her. Yeah, he knows her. And that's one thing that actually bugs me about the reveal of her as the killer, is we could have had at least one scene earlier with her. Yeah. Because well, apparently everybody knows her. Right, well, she's a Nate, you know, native. Yeah. She's lived there her most of her life, and you know, it, was her, it was her kid who drowned. Yeah, and we get her pulling up later, and we don't know who the fuck she is, and she just launches into this, I'm a good lady. Right. Like, well, we had a couple scenes earlier, like in town. Yeah, you're right. That could have been set up way better. Or maybe she stopped by the camp. I'm like, I'm just dropping off supplies for you. Have a great time, you know, to just really it's develop jug, her. Just jug with the skull and crossbones, just like visit <laughs> on it. Before we get that reveal, we have Alice wandering around alone. Yelling names. Yelling names, yelling names. She finds Bill dead, and he's just pinned to the door of the archery range. Yep, that's good. A lot of off-screen kills in this movie. Yeah, there are, most of them are off-screen. I'd say half of the kills are off-screen in this movie. We, we just discover their body later, but, but we already know they're dead. A lot of the reveals are good, so... I think I read, I think because uh, the Amazon thing has notes on it, like trivia notes. Oh yeah, Amazon has that like x-ray thing. Yeah, and they were saying that Bill's, like, the actor was, like, actually allergic to or got stuff in his eyes. He was actually in, like, a lot of pain while he was in that scene where he's... I literally had to buy a brand new Blu-ray player for this episode. Oh, because you got <laughs> well, all, the, all the goodies. Well, I needed to buy a new one anyway. Because you got all the goodies on the, on the Blu-ray. Yeah, because I have the Blu-ray collection, and I was like, well, I'm going to watch that. I needed the, to buy a new one anyway. And I'm the pleb who watches everything on like, the streaming service. <laughs> and that's how we're doing most of our movies. Like That's our rule with this show, is it has to be streaming somewhere. Whether you have to pay or not, it still has to be available. Because that's one thing when I get all these podcasts, and they talk about these great older movies that are available nowhere. Right. It's not much fun to try to dig up. I mean, there are cool movies out there that unfortunately are not really accessible, so that's a bummer. But we'd rather you guys actually be able to watch the movies we talk about. Yes, and that's why we tell you what they are a week ahead. It's like a book club, but with exploitation films. But back to the movie. Um, when Alice goes back to the counselor center, yes, the strip monopoly room. There's a body thrown through the window. Oh yeah. And I guess it's Brenda's or not, but the body that's actually flying through the window is Todd Savini in a wig. Yes, I think it is Brenda. Yeah, and she sees it's Brenda, and that's when she runs out just as Mrs. Voorhees comes up in the jeep that we saw Annie get into. Yep. And she pops out. Oh, I'm Mrs. Voorhees. How are you? Right. Of course, nobody saw Annie. He even met Annie. Annie was 
was killed before she got there, so no one saw this jeep or anything. And then when we get Annie's reveal that she's just in the in the in the tr- in the jeep. Oh yeah. <laughs> like Pamela Voorhees is just driving around all day with this dead body in her car. Why didn't you just leave it in the woods? Buckled into the passenger seat. You don't want the body to go flying through the window. Pamela Voorhees, she starts off nice, and then she sees the dead bodies, and she launches into her monologue about, Oh, a young boy drowned here. His name was Jason. He wasn't a good swimmer. It was my son. Today's his birthday. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't have let him out of your sight if he was that inept. And you get Alice starting to get it. Like, you see she's backing away. Like, Pamela hasn't quite turned yet, but you can see she's on the road. Right. And we have just long cat and mouse game with her and Alice. And we're going to break for a commercial real quick here, and we'll be right back. Monopoly is America's favorite game. Everybody loves this game of real estate, and everybody loves me, Rich Uncle Pennybags. Whether it's regular Monopoly, Monopoly Cheaters Edition, Avengers Monopoly, Star Wars Monopoly, that dumb millennial one. Did I did I say Star Wars already? Anyway, everybody loves Monopoly. And now you can start calling me Rich Uncle Funbags because this is Strip Monopoly from Hasbro. Get a co-ed group of friends together, grab some beers, and make your way around the board taking your clothes off instead of paying rent. Some of you may actually have a landlord that prefers it that way. It doesn't matter who's the baker, who plays the shoe, who plays the hat, you'll all be naked eventually, and that's just the house rules. Who knows what kind of fun you'll have playing Strip Monopoly, just send me pictures of it. I promise I won't share them on our official Strip Monopoly Instagram, so take a shower, put on your favorite undries, and enjoy some Strip Monopoly from Hasbro, the perfect game for a rainy day. And we're back. So, the long cat and mouse between Alice and Pamela, I don't have a lot of notes for it because I, I've seen it a billion times, and there's there's maybe just moments to talk about, but we really we really can't do a play-by-play. Yeah, I mean, I was, this scene kind of bugs me, these scenes, I guess, kind of bug me. I mean, Pamela's an old woman, and this is a young, you know, young girl who's in pretty good shape and fairly tall, should be able to at least be on even footing with this woman once once she's unarmed, because eventually, you know, she's able to disarm Pamela, but she can't seem to get, like, an edge in, like, how is this old lady beating the crap out of her? Well, she usually gets the jump on her, is how. Yeah. Like, on fair footing, they're, they're evenly matched, which is one thing that makes us a really good slasher. It's because Alice really can kick her ass. It's just Pamela's outthinking her. There's the other couple other scenes. She hits him with, she hit with like a cast iron pan, and I don't know how she gets up after that. I mean, obviously she's out for like 30 seconds, and then is immediately chasing her. Like you get hit in the head, like the back of the head of the cast iron skillet. Best case scenario, you have a severe concussion. You're probably dead. Actually, I mean, I have a cast iron skillet in my house, and it weighs like 30 pounds. It is not light. They are dense, heavy objects. No, they are. So that was a little bit, like, I guess crazy knows no bounds. And a word of trivia, because Betsy Palmer, who plays Pamela Voorhees, this was so not her genre. But she picked it up because her car broke, and she needed to buy a new car. And they're like, we'll pay you something thousand dollars to be in this movie. And she's like, that buys a car I'm in. She got taught, like, top billing, too, didn't she? Well, yeah, she was a well-known actress. So she got, she wasn't even in the movie that long, but she got, you know, top credits and... No, but she's somebody people in 1980 would recognize. No, yeah. And I wasn't really around watching movies then. No, me neither. I was not yet born. And you were barely born. Barely, barely. And um, But we finally get to the shore of the lake for the final showdown, and Alice cuts off Pamela Voorhees' head. Beautiful effect. Wonderful work from Todd Savini. I love when she cuts off her head and her hands come up and they're just grasping at nothing. It's just like the nerves are firing, you know, and like, that's actually really clever. Yeah. One of the more violent deaths in the movie, actually. Maybe the most violent death in the movie. Yeah. I mean, an axe through the head, but it's a pretty cold cut. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, that arrow through the neck's pretty grim, I guess, but. And I don't know, um. Cutting somebody's head off with a machete in one swipe? It'd be pretty sharp, and that did not look like the sharpest machete in the world. No, that looked like an old-ass machete. Well, that's the same machete that Bill used to kill the snake. Yeah, yeah. Probably rusty. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe a little bit pushing it a bit much. It did not look like fresh Valerian steel. No, 
Not brand new, for sure. And we get the ending sequence, which was not in the original script. The real ending or the false ending? The false ending. Okay. Not in the original script, because they were making the movie, and Todd Savini had just watched Carrie had come out that year. Oh, okay. And Carrie ends with that dream sequence, Mm -hmm. which Brian De Palma put a lot of effort in that dream sequence to make it trippy as fuck. But there's a huge jump scare and the girl waking up screaming and Todd Savini goes to Cunningham. It's like, we, we need to do this. We need to we need to rip this off because this is an exploitation film. Right. And so they wrote this scene um, with Alice out on the lake and she sees the police come in and she's content. Everything is fine. And then Jason jumps out and drags her in and she wakes up screaming like it's a dream sequence. That, that is a very effective jump. I don't like jump scares as a general rule, but that is a very effective scene. And the music for that, which is why I was like, I was going to bring up Han- Henry Manfredini later. Yeah. They come to him in like 11th hour with, we're, we're writing this new scene and we need a, scene, a song to fit it. And he's like, well, I already wrote this country song that's playing on the radio. Yeah. I'm just going to strip the vocals and play it on strings. Oh, clever. So it's the exact same song. And it's interesting because it's like super pretty. Like yeah. Dream. The country song that's playing is the same song that plays during her, her dream sequence. And which is supposed to be a dream sequence. We'll get more into this in two, but at this point, canonically, it was a dream. They never intended to have a sequel to this. They never intended to have a sequel. But money talks, and the movie was very successful. And, you know, Alice wakes up. What about the boy, Jason? We didn't find no boy, ma'am. Then he's still out there and shot at a lake in credits. Um, real quick, though, the guy that plays Jason, well, the boy, that's Jason that jumps out of the lake, had worked with Sean Cunningham previously on his ripoff Bad News Bears movie. Oh. He was one of the kids in that movie. His name's Ari Lehman is the name of the actor. And he's in the documentaries, and he goes to cons all the time, and he's very, very proud of this role. He is. He is. I am the first Jason. I'm the first Jason. Yeah. And he, he has a band that's called First Jason or something like that. You know, more power to him. I'm like, if I had done that role, I would yeah, milk keep – I, I would milk it in my 50s still. Sure, why not? He's every right to be proud of that role, and like you see him in interviews and at cons, and he is so hyped. He loves what he has done. Oh, I mean that scene is uh, very iconic. It is, you know, it, it's more so than the Nirvana Nevermind kid. Yeah, well, that guy. Oh, that guy's an ass. Kind of an ass, yeah. And that's pretty much the movie. It made a shit ton of money. It did off of an incredibly low budget incredibly low budget and then it made all these millions part of it was the way well the way cunningham marketed it even before he had a script the way he got the funding was he he posted an ad in variety that's the poster for the movie <laughs> um he just posted the poster in variety and did to, to kind of snag producers in and then he's like okay we got the money now i need to find a script <laughs> but yeah it became the most widely popular franchise ever very interesting first watched this like like I said when i was 12 i watched it on usa up all night uh, with gilbert godfrey rip yes rip unfortunately of course we're talking about the dead after they died unlike the geek juice days where people would die the week after we talked about oh, them oh god yeah how horrible was that oh god <laughs> kevin bacon no but yeah thoughts on the movie i like this movie the first time i saw this i was in college i actually went on like a huge like slasher kick in college and i watched a bunch of friday the 13th i watched all the nightmare and Elementary movies which i love and uh i thought this was good when i first saw it on really crappy bootleg whatever the hell I'd got off of LimeWire or some such shit in oh. 2002. And uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I still enjoy it. It's still really, still a good movie. It actually got me thinking a lot. Maybe we can have this conversation in the next one too, or maybe more. But the thought I was having is like, because of the supernatural thing, right, with Jason, would this have been a better movie if, uh, if there had never been any sequels and this is just its own standalone thing? I think it would have been still as classic as it is, yeah. Because it's interesting, because it would rob the world of an iconic, you know, villain, right? Like Jason Voorhees' hockey mask, which he doesn't even get to the third movie, but whatever. But the movie itself sort of loses something that in, in, 
in its on its own loses something from having had all these sequels because that end scene doesn't really work as well knowing that oh yeah Jason is real and he's the supernatural killing machine. If you had watched this in 1980, that would have left a bigger what if. Yeah, now it's just like oh okay. Yeah, it's just we know that because, Jason took her down. Right, and because of the movie itself, he wasn't. Like and that's why. Day. Everybody that worked on this wanted nothing to do with the sequel. When they knew that Jason was there, uh, Betsy Palmer, Todd Savini, Victor Miller, they were like, fuck that. No, Jason's dead. If he was alive, then what was the point of that whole fucking movie? Exactly. And that that was one of my thoughts. Now, spoiler, I like Friday the 13th Part 2 a lot. But this movie is a better movie if it, if you ignore the sequel. This movie is only good if you ignore the sequels. I mean, it's a good movie still, but it improves if there's no sequels. Right, and that's one of those interesting discussions. It's it's like, when is a sequel worth it? I, I had this same feeling about Saw. I think Saw is a much better film ignoring the subsequent sequels. Oh, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day, and actually. That Saw 2 is okay, but I'm, what I'm saying is Saw is a very interesting movie. But when you have this, like sort of semi-omnipotent, you know, jigsaw killer guy and the whole the chain that has to go, you know, the the trauma that involves that guy and his protégés, whatever the hell Saw and then, up with. Uh, well, Saw's a mess because half of the sequels are, like, technically prequels because he's dead of cancer or right. something, you know, like... Is that the third Saw movie or the fourth Saw movie he dies of cancer? I don't fucking remember. Well, he's dying of cancer in the first Saw right, movie. But at some point, I remember like a brain surgery scene in one of these movies. Yeah, I don't Saw know. But, but my point is, is a ridiculous if you franchise. just take Saw on its own, it's this really interesting, like, stressful – because there's really only two characters in this movie. In a room. Well, yeah. And, but you do have all these false leads about who the killer is. You're into the suspense of trying to figure it out, and you have, like, a red herring, you know, so there's a lot of good mystery in Saw. Yeah. And, that, and that's that's my – I think that's my, my point that's, with this, too. It's like, yeah. yes, we – and the Jigsaw killer has kind of become, you know, this sort of iconic modern horror villain. But there's – you get a lot more invested when you don't know who the killer is. Right. Exactly. And this – I think this it, – it's better – this movie would – Again, I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It's a good movie. It's like a really good movie if it doesn't have sequels. So the cost of creating Jason as this like omnipresent horror villain was to sacrifice the original movie largely. Yeah, I don't know. It's just some thoughts I was having. Like sometimes, and I, I don't know. We're probably going on a little bit too long about this, but again, we go back to Alien. Uh, Alien is a great movie by itself. The sequel, Aliens, is great. The thing with I think that aliens, well, also aliens is a different genre than right, alien. I'm saying that the world. I, I think one of the things when you start going into sci-fi and you start going into fantasy uh, is the world building. Like this is ostensibly set in the real world, so there's not a whole lot of world building to be done, and so you kind of lose things. You go into aliens, and then you got the Wayland Utani Corp. And it's like all these layers of things. It makes up for the fact that. Alien itself kind of loses something from having sequels because the world grows, and you have this weird thing with the navigator and, and they, that's what oh. called. and then how that ties in from you know whatever the world building is very is very deep, and Whereas, it goes off the rails with Prometheus. Yes, it does go off the rails, but the point is there's a lot there. You know, you have a real world setting. It's like, what are we doing in the sequel? Well, we're just going to keep making it more and more supernatural. Like that's kind of like as far as you go with it. Not necessarily to make the movies unentertaining, but it doesn't have the gravitas as adding like this giant, you know, fantasy world building that goes on in some of these other genres. Anyway, just some thoughts I was having after I finished watching this movie, because it almost makes me sad watching this movie. Going, they kind of just threw this to the wayside to make the rest of the series. Yeah, like if this had been a one-off, has just about every other slasher from that era. I mean, you had a couple lucky ones that turned into franchises. Halloween, Nightmare came out in '84. Sleepaway Camp later. Yeah, but yeah. Speaking of movies that uh, sequels do not help, Sleepaway. Yeah, but you do have a lot, a lot of standalone slasher films. Yeah. That are fine. I mean, they're they're not Oscar winners. That's for certain. It's no Ibsen. Right. I'm just 
I just saying that, you know, maybe it's okay to not have sequels to things that work really well within the context of its own story. Yep. And I'm going to say that's our episode, unless you had anything else. No, liked the movie. Kind of wish it didn't make sequels, but I like the second one, which we'll talk about shortly. All right. That's our episode on Friday the 13th. Coming up, we have our bonus episode where we look at Friday the 13th Part 2. Next week, we're looking at uh, Reefer Madness. So big special thanks to Charlie McMullen and William Wright for recording the advertisements heard in this episode. Make sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what we do, make sure to leave a review and let others know. Help get the word out. Follow us on Twitter at Podcast Exploit and on Instagram at Exploit It Podcast. Or contact us at exploititpodcast at gmail.com. Join us next time. <laughs> <laughs>